Welcome to the Ideas That Change the World podcast with Rabbi Manus Friedman, where we make sure your life will be changed for the better, one idea at a time. Rabbi Friedman is the number one voice of clarity on moral and social issues. So what are we waiting for? Let's go change the world. It can only be helpful and inspiring to know exactly where we're going and what our long-term goal really is. In our relationship with God, we have, of course, the personal side, just one-on-one with God, my own personal morality, my service of God, and so on. But there's also the bigger picture, the plan for the uh, vast eternal purpose for which God created the world and the fulfillment of that plan. So how do we go about that, and what exactly is it? There are two parts, actually. One is to give God a voice in his world. That's the first step in making the world godly, and eventually to bring about a state of being in which the primary pleasure in life is the service of God or the closeness to God. We spoke about this in a lecture entitled, What Does God Want? A View of Our Future, and it was at the Chabad House, Midtown Manhattan, and it went something like this. So what does God want from us? To understand what God wants and uh, be able to, at least in very general terms, describe our future, we have to go back to the uh, beginnings of creation, the reason for creation. Why did God create the world in the first place? Now, in the Torah, in various places, we are given different answers. Why did God create the world? Or what did God create the world for? We find answers such as this. A philosophical answer. A philosophical answer is that a perfect being has no failures. Which means that in a perfect being, every ability, every talent gets expressed Only in an imperfect being do you have potential that never gets used, talents that never get expressed because they're blocked or frustrated or whatever. In God, obviously, there can be no blockage, there could be no frustrations, there could be no failures, and therefore, everything he can do, he does. So part of his perfection, part of his being, an infinite Ein Sof, is that his potential is actualized. And since he can create physical universes, he does. (laughs) To put it very briefly, why did God create the world? Because he can. And so he does. Another explanation is that one of God's attributes whatever that means. One of God's attributes is royalty. Sovereignty, royalty. And in order for royalty to exist, you have to have people who are your subjects. Otherwise, who are you a king over? And you can't be a king over your own children. In other words, angels would not work. God is not the king of the angels. He is the God of the angels, which is what we mean when we say the God of gods. We mean angels. But he is not a king over angels because they have no opinion. To be a king, you have to be a king over people who have an opinion other than your own. In other words, they are at a distance from you. They don't think the way you do. They don't know what you do. And therefore, you are their king. So in order for God to express this one attribute of royalty, he would have to have creations, physical beings, who think differently from himself. That's another given reason. A third reason given is because God is essentially good, and it is the nature of the good to do good. And in order to do good, God had to create beings to whom he can be benevolent or generous or helpful, be good. And so he created the world in order to be good. 
These are all the many, some of the many reasons that are given in various places in the Torah. In Hasidic philosophy, beginning with the Baal Shem Tov, the thinking was that all of these explanations don't go back far enough. So, for example, the attribute of royalty needs to be expressed. Well, why is there an attribute of royalty? Certainly God doesn't have a fixed need to be a king. It's something he chose. Well, if he already chose that, then it's already in the process of creation. So you're not telling me where it started. You're picking up in the middle of the, of the story. Once God decided to be a king, well, that's after he already decided to create a world. And he's creating the world with the attribute of royalty. But why did he start in the first place? And the same question is with God being good. Goodness is an attribute. Why did God decide to be good and then need someone to be good too? So we need to go back further in order to get to the true reason for which God created the world. And so we find a medrash. The medrash says God created the world because he desired a dwelling place in the physical. The word desire doesn't seem appropriate for God. The meaning of it, the reason we use that word, is because we're trying to describe a choice, a decision, which is very significant, and yet at the same time, completely voluntary. See, in a human being, we don't have that. If you talk about a human's, human being's significant decisions and, and uh, choices, you're talking about things he needs deeply. So he's forced. It's not voluntary. If it is voluntary, then it's not so important. If you do something by choice, it means you didn't have to do it. You could have decided not to do it. You decided to do it. Well, it's not so important. Whereas what you had to have, what you must have, that's important. On the other hand, it's not a choice. You have to have it. And with God, we got to find some kind of a combination. It is absolutely essential to him, and at the same time, it's completely voluntary. So for lack of a better word, the Medrash uses the word for desire. Hasidus then adds, once you say it was a desire, you can't ask any further questions. If God says, I desire a dwelling place in the lower world, and you say, why? <laughs> See, it's not a good question. Once you know it's a desire, you know you can't ask why. There is no why to a desire. There is why to an opinion, not to a desire. So basically, what we end up with, when you ask the question, why did God create the world? The answer is, nobody knows. Why nobody knows? Because any reason you give that is logical and compelling can't apply to him. Because nothing compels him. He's God. And we're talking about the beginning. Once there is a creation, certain things compel him. He chose the Jewish people. Well, because he has to have someone who's going to fulfill his purpose. That's a little compelled. He has to take care of us. Otherwise, I mean, what is he going to do? Let his world be destroyed? So that's a little compelled. But... That's after the world already exists. In the beginning, there can be no compelling reason. So listen to this. If you find a really compelling reason for which God created the world, then it's the wrong answer. It can't be. God created the world not because the world is compelling, but because he so desired. What makes him desire? Nothing makes him desire. This is him. 
This is him. So on the one hand, we're saying creation is an essential part of God. It's not just a little project he chose for himself. And on the other hand, we're saying he's not compelled. It's voluntary. So with God, saying it's voluntary makes it even more important, more essential, not less. Be that as it may. The very fact that we say, we ask, what does God want? We are assuming that God has a want. That's an amazing thing. Because essentially in religious thinking, God wants nothing, by definition. If he's God, why should he want? You know certain people who think they're God, they couldn't care less. They're God. Why should they care? And that's why you don't like them. Because they have this attitude that they don't care because they're God. So God, who is God, why would he care? Why would he want anything? And yet we're so used to this idea. God wants. What does he want? Well, he doesn't want that. That's ridiculous. He must want the other. The whole idea of wanting is a revelation. We would never know and we would never believe that God wants anything had God not told us, not revealed it in Torah. So the biggest revelation in Torah you know, to find out that God doesn't want you to mix meat and milk, that, that's, pretty, <laughs> that's pretty unexpected. That's a revelation. Would you have thought that God cares about meat and milk? But that's not as great a revelation, not as, as surprising, as stunning a revelation, as the very notion that God wants, whatever it is. The fact that he wants, that is, that is a leap of faith. So what does God want? God wants a dwelling place in the lowest world. That tells us two things. A dwelling place is not a place you visit. It's not a place you stop off on occasion. It's where you belong. It's your dwelling place. A dwelling place, by the way, is more personal, more intimate than a palace. A king lives in a palace. It's not his dwelling place. Because in a palace, there are formalities. In the palace, the king has to behave a certain way. He has to dress a certain way. There's protocol. In his own home, the king doesn't have to behave any particular way. He's just himself, which is in some ways more than being a king, which is a role. So a dwelling place for God means a place where God is most comfortable, completely comfortable, where he can be himself. He doesn't have to be holy. He doesn't have to be infinite. He doesn't have to be awesome. He can just be whatever it is he be. Which is why heaven doesn't work for God as a home, because in heaven he can't just be. In heaven he is expected to be heavenly. And the angels can relate to him only one way. Holy, holy, holy. And of course God is holy, but that's not all he is. That's not the real him. And so to get past that, God chooses to make his dwelling place in the lowest world where we have no expectations because we're not interested in holy. We don't even enjoy holy. We don't like holy. Here, God can make for himself a dwelling place. But on the other hand, if it's going to be in the lowest world, then it can't happen through miracles. Because if miraculously this world becomes a dwelling place for God, then it's not the lowest world, it's a miraculous world. 
A miraculous world is not low. It's divine. Miracles are divine. Which explains the first fundamental question, aspect of what does God want. Whatever he wants, it's taking 5,763 years so far. Why is it taking so long? Can't God get what he wants quickly? <laughs> Order out or something? I get it. You know, quick. The answer is, if it's going to be in the lowest world, then it has to go at the pace of the lowest world, not at God's pace. Because if it goes at his pace, it's not a low world. It's a heavenly world. So it's taking long because the world itself, the physical condition, has to somehow transform into a dwelling place for God. Which basically means we want to take the lowest possible existence and turn it into the highest possible existence. It makes sense that this would take a, a few weekends at least. What then is the process? If it can't happen by miracle, then how does it happen? One of the secrets is that God breathes a piece of himself into every Jew so that the Jewish soul is actually a piece of himself which is much greater than creation because it's not a created soul, it's a piece of himself. And where does he breathe this piece of himself? Into a dead body, which is the lowest physical object in the world. Even a living worm is higher than a dead body. And so Torah tells us, God shaped the body out of the earth and then breathed into it this living soul. We are the only creatures that were created that way. Every other living creature was created alive. We were created in two stages. First, a dead body, and then the greatest of souls breathed into that body. This combination of a little piece of God in the lowest physical being is what makes it possible to bring these two realities together. And that eventually, just as the body comes completely alive with this soul, the earth will be completely alive with God's presence. And just as the soul is to the body, God is to creation. But we also see that sometimes our soul is not comfortable with our body. You see people who get depressed. What does that mean? The soul is withdrawing. It doesn't want to participate. A child is born, God forbid, autistic. What does that mean? He doesn't want to be part of the physical world. He's holding back. He's not engaging. All illness is one form or another of a disconnect between body and soul. Sometimes the fault lies with the body. Sometimes the fault lies with the soul. And even highly inspired individuals, the true mystics, the true holy people, cannot settle their soul into their body because the soul is too otherworldly and can't get comfortable in this world. And that's not good. That's not admirable. Certainly not desirable. God wants us in this world transforming the body, transforming the physical, and elevating it to a higher level. This happens in a number of stages. We're reading in the Torah these weeks, we're reading about the plagues. God sent ten plagues against the Egyptians. And what was the purpose of these plagues? Not to punish. Nowhere does it say that this is punishment. The Torah says the plague's purpose was to get through or past the stubbornness of Egyptian thinking and feeling until even they will recognize, recognize that God is God, not they, not the Nile, not sheep or cows or snakes. It took a few plagues, but it worked. 
I think by the third plague they were starting to uh, to have their doubts. By the fifth plague they were saying, can't you see this is God's hand here or God's finger? And by the end, Pharaoh said, look, God is right, I was wrong. So it worked. The purpose, the first stage of all of history that we've gone through, history as we know it, God initially has to become the king of the world. And so in every bracha that we make, Baruch atah Hashem Elokeinu Melech Ha'olam, King of the world. What does King of the world mean? Very practically, if we can call it that, who calls the shots? Here we have a world with a whole lot of people in it. Decisions have to be made. Who calls the shots? Who decides? The guy with the biggest stick? The guy with the most money? The guy with the most fame? Who calls the shots? Who's in charge? Whose opinion prevails? It's a very practical, simple question. Right now we see it in a very graphic form. The United States wants to attack Iraq. Or at least they say they do. Other countries say, who gives you permission? How can you decide to initiate a war with a country on your own? Who are you to make such decisions? The United Nations should make the decision. Because the United Nations is a committee. No decision was ever reached by a committee. So there will be no decision there. So who's calling the shots so far? Saddam Hussein because he thinks he's God. He's convinced he's God. And so he calls the shots. He does what he wants. President Bush has to agonize over the decision. Is it the right one? Is it the moral one? Is it correct? Will it work? Will it get him elected? A lot of things to consider. Re-elected. Saddam Hussein has no such problems. He doesn't need to be elected. He doesn't care what the United Nations believes or thinks. And so he decides to do whatever it is he wants to do. That's not the way God wants the world. God wants to be the final authority, at least on moral questions. He would like to be the moral authority of the world. This is just for starters. So for starters, when you have to make a decision, when you have to make a choice, when you've got to decide which way you're going to go, who do you call? Who's got the final opinion? There's nothing more holy, more godly, more perfect in God's plan than a child shopping for a candy by himself. Parents are not there. The rabbi is not there. The teacher is not there. He's on his own. And he wants to buy a candy. And he sees a candy that looks good. And he checks the ingredients to see if there's a kosher sign. And there's no kosher sign, so he puts it back. That's what God wants. On what basis do you decide whether you should or shouldn't buy a candy? You ask God, may I have this candy? And God said no, so you put it back. That's what we mean by Melech Ha'olam. God is the king. So in every issue, you want to know what does God say? What does God want? Wants me to buy the candy? Wants me not to buy the candy? So, as a starter... What God wants is that in moral questions, we should consult him. That's what he wants. So what does God want? God wants us to make him the king of the world. And in a million different ways and a million different times through history, 
That's what we did. Listen to Moshe speaking to Pharaoh. The first thing Moshe said when he came to Pharaoh, what did he say? We're working too hard? We can't take this anymore? No. That was not the real issue. The real purpose of creation. What God ultimately wants. He came to Pharaoh and he said, God is waiting for us to uh, celebrate something. We have to go. Pharaoh believed in God. He believed in a creator. In fact, he believed in many creators and in many gods. He had more faith than we. But none of those gods had an opinion. Like in Greek mythology, there are many gods. They don't have opinions. They have moods. And you've got to watch out. Don't talk to them when they're in a bad mood. Or appease them if they're in a bad mood. But they have no opinion. There is no right or wrong. Moshe came to Pharaoh to deliver the most essential message of history. God has an opinion. And he wants us to sacrifice sheep. And we can't do that in Egypt. You're going to get very upset. Because you worship sheep. And so we have to go. We have an appointment with God, so we need to leave as much as we would love to stay and build you another pyramid. But we have to go. So why didn't Moshe say, we can't take all this work, you're working us too hard, and what do we have you know, in the end? What do we have to, what have we got left over to leave to our children? We can't live like this. We don't like this. This is not nice. Moshe went straight for the ultimate truth. God is the king of the world, and he said to go. So we go. And eventually Pharaoh agreed that when God says to go, you got to go. And we've done this a million times through history. Wherever Jews were, whatever country we lived in, whatever society or culture or religion we were faced with, we kept bringing up the same message. But what does God say? A bunch of people got together and they started a religion called Christianity. Now they want us to convert to Christianity. What did we do? We asked God. God said no. So we said no. And they couldn't believe it. Why not? You're a miserable minority. You've got nothing to show for yourself. You become one of us. You'll be at top of the world. What is your problem? It makes so much sense. And besides, Christianity makes more sense in some way. You can eat what you want. In Minnesota, that's no small thing. And we say no. And when they ask us, why not? We say, I don't know why not. God doesn't let Again, the message being, God has an opinion. Stop running the world as if God didn't care, as if God wasn't involved. Communism came along. And they had this very compelling logical argument. Enough with this religion. It's archaic. It's meaningless. It's Get with the modern times. We said no. Stalin said, I'll kill you. We said, do what you got to do. But the answer is no. It may be safe to say that the world as it is today has come to a very encouraging state. There isn't a government in the world who would have the chutzpah to say, don't listen to God. God is not relevant. There's no such country anymore. To deny people religious rights, to deny a person the right to, to obey God and serve God, there isn't a country in the world that would do that. And if they did, they would never admit it.
they would couch it in some other because it is no longer acceptable, it is no longer fashionable, it is no longer interesting to try to run the world without God. At least on a collective level. Putin shows up in synagogues <laughs> more than he shows up in the Kremlin. He hangs around with this Rabbi Lazar. And the joke now is they call Putin to find out where Lazar is. So there is something good, something positive. God has a voice. Now we're still debating what exactly he said with his voice. But a voiceless God, this is gone. Doesn't exist anymore. A God who can be ignored, no longer. What more does God want? The response to him is kind of spotty. We respond to him when we have to, in big questions. We kind of forget about him and the more, uh, the more personal issues, the less cosmic issues. That's spotty. It's a sloppy relationship. And we can sure, certainly use a little improvement there. God's opinion should be relevant all the time on an individual level, in a relationship, as a community, as a nation, as a world. The state beyond that is where God not only wants to be consulted and obeyed, but God wants to become the natural order in our lives. That even when we have no question, when we're not faced with a moral decision, God should be a permanent and integral part of our thinking, of our feeling, of our lives. Which means that we shouldn't have a physical world that obeys God. A physical world that surrenders moral decisions to God. We want a physical world that is indistinguishable from God. Again, example. A child who is thoroughly immersed in Torah, in Jewish life, living by Torah, wakes up in the morning and he instinctively looks for his yarmulke. What is he thinking when he's looking for his yarmulke? Nothing. He's not asking a moral question. He's not responding to God's command to cover your head. It's just instinctive. He feels naked without it. In, in simple practical terms, there will come a time where a Jew sitting at a meal with a non-Jew will not be able to eat non-kosher food even if he wanted to because the non-Jew wouldn't let him. Because you just don't do that. I don't think this would be considered a moral crisis. It's a godly crisis. There's nothing immoral about eating a non-kosher sandwich, but it's not the godly way. So here are the two stages. Stage number one, God is the authority on morality. When we have moral questions, God should be the final voice. Second stage, it's not enough to be moral. We have to be godly. That's like in a relationship where husband and wife never hurt each other. That's good. That's not a marriage. That's a ceasefire. That's not real peace. So the fact that you don't do anything immoral... There are no criminal activities going on. Well, that's very nice, but nothing special. What we want is something beyond correct, something beyond morally acceptable. We want something holy, godly, divine. That's like, why is there a machitza in a synagogue? To separate men from women... Yeah, in the synagogue is not where you need to separate them. 
Maybe I should have it on the beach. A machita, a beach. What would we call it? A machita the beach. When you're having a party and people are getting drunk, it'd be a good idea to have a wall between the men and the women. But in the synagogue? Come on. The mechitza is not there to enforce morality. If you need morality enforced in the shul, you don't belong there at all. If you have to be told not to sin while you're in a shul, maybe you should do some preparation before you even come to shul. Of course, in the shul, you're not going to do anything immoral, sinful, criminal. But without the mechitza, that's all it's going to be. It'll be moral, it'll be acceptable, it'll be legal, but not holy. The synagogue has to be holy. And now we need to move on to the next stage. It's not enough to be good. We have to be godly. It's not enough to be decent. God wants us to be holy. And it's not enough to be a real mensch. God wants us to be divine. And then the world will be a real dwelling place for him. How do we do that? Realistically, we cannot transform ourselves and the world in dramatic ways because they don't last, they don't work. It's got to be realistic, it's got to be lasting, and it has to be wisely applied, which means no matter how good you are, move yourself to a better, higher level. One step better. Whatever you're comfortable with in terms of mitzvahs, whatever you're comfortable with in terms of decency, kindness, consideration, respect, ratchet all of that up one more step. Be just a little more respectful than is comfortable. Be a little more thoughtful than your habit. Be a little more generous than you've allowed yourself to be in the past. And what does that do? When you move yourself from your natural state, from your comfort level, comfort zone, when you move yourself from your comfort zone even a tiny bit, You've gone from being human to being divine. You've transcended nature. Nature demands only so much, and you're going beyond that. Logic demands only so much, and you're going beyond that. Morality demands only so much. Go beyond that. A little bit. But that little bit has a very powerful effect. A very powerful effect. I was speaking this morning in, in Connecticut. Parenting. The element of sanctity is missing from children's lives. And children appreciate sanctity so much better than adults. And to deny them sanctity is so counterproductive. Children need sanctity. In fact, we're talking about modesty in the home, that parents should behave in a modest fashion in the home, and that in the home we need to be more modest than we are in the street, believe it or not. So if you're going to be immodest, do it outside. You imagine? Kid is running around in his underwear. You say to the kid, hey, outside. Outside you can run around like that, not in, a, not in our home. Our home is a place of goodness, a place of holiness. You want unholy? Out in the streets. So I'm saying to the parents, be more modest, be more... And afterwards a woman comes over to me and she says, you know, I was very surprised and I didn't know what to make of it. Actually, she's a psychiatrist. And she's very open and liberal and 
not modest, in a traditional way. And she says her 11-year-old asked her to please not do that anymore. Her, her 11-year-old boy asked her to please get dressed. And as a uh, mental health professional, her first reaction was, what is your problem? Do we need some therapy here? Do you have some hang-up? Why are you uncomfortable with nature? But then she thought, rethought it and she, she felt that she really should indulge him and be more modest around him. And then when we talked this morning, it all became much more clear that that was the right thing to do and that her 11-year-old's instincts were healthier than her opinions. And so she's learning from her child. That's what we want. We don't want mere decency. I mean, she's a very decent woman. Her immodesty is not vulgar, it's not criminal, it's not insane. It's just not holy. It's not sacred. And children have a sense, a feel for sanctity. And they need it. The intelligent child can identify it and can verbalize it. But even the child who doesn't ask for it, wants it and needs it and will thrive on it. Because that's the nature of a godly soul. So what does God want and what, what awaits us in the future? I think we caught a little glimpse on September 11th or around September 11th, a little glimpse of a world suddenly conscious of a divine opinion, that we should make our decisions, our behavior should be governed by a divine opinion. What does God say? What does God want? Now, obviously, this leads us to a showdown. Once we all agree that we should obey God, then the question becomes, what did God say? We have at least three religions with three different opinions as to what God said. This can't go on forever. We have to know what God said. Did God say, thou shalt not kill, or did God say, kill whoever doesn't uh, behave the way you behave? What did God say? Now that we're listening, it has become much more important to know exactly what he said. This is the next, I think, frontier in human history. The 21st century is not going to be about countries, about politics, about weapons, about wars. That's not what, it's a, not what it's about. The 21st century will go down in history as the century in which we finally rediscovered what God wants. And we rededicated ourselves to abiding by what God wants. That's the big event of the 21st century. It's not going to be easy. It's not going to be painless. But it has to happen. It is happening. And the Jewish people have to play a central role, if not a dominant role, in this process. That's what God wants. And that's how, more or less, it's going to unfold. And the end, as we say in the Aleinu, in the second uh, paragraph of the Aleinu, the sinful will come and join in the service of God. All the nations will recognize God. All the nations will obey God. What does all this mean? Obviously, it means we know what God wants. How else can we obey Him? How else can all nations obey God without knowing exactly what he wants. And so the Jewish role 
our place in this final stage of history is certainly significant, if not determining. We can't be humble. We can't be meek. We haven't survived this long with our answers intact, with Torah intact, with our knowledge intact. We didn't survive this long to remain silent when the answers are so urgently needed. We survived and our answers survived for this moment in history. As Mordechai said to Esther, you know what Mordechai said to Esther? <laughs> As Mordechai said to Esther, she had been queen for 10 years. Not that she wanted to be. For 10 years she was captive in the palace. And now Mordechai wants her to go to the king voluntarily for the first time in 10 years. She never went voluntarily. Now he wants her to go voluntarily in order to save her people. And Esther hesitates. And Mordechai says to her, among other things, isn't it possible that it is for this moment that you have been queen for 10 years now? All those 10 years are meaningless if you don't speak up now. This is your cue. And you've been practicing and rehearsing for this for 10 years. And now there's the cue and you're not going to go on stage? You can't do that. And the same is true with history. The Jewish people are a part of history, of every page of history. I don't know if I mentioned this last time. I was speaking to a group of ministers, Lutheran ministers, and we were having a very nice conversation. It was all very polite and respectful and so on. And there was no attempt at, uh, you know, a little evangelism, a little zealous. You know. But towards the last questions, next to the last question, some guy said, so, after all this good stuff, said, so, how come you suffer so much? And, uh, the, you know, the unspoken implication I didn't like. So, you know, when Jews get together, we love to talk about how much we suffer. <laughs> With each other, we boast about how much we suffer. You don't even know the half of it. Oh, it was much worse. <laughs> but when a Lutheran minister says, so how come you guys suffer so much? Uh, so I said, what gives you the impression that we suffer? He says, you know, uh, throughout history, you've always been suffering. I said, no, throughout history, we've always been. Others don't suffer so much. They die. The Romans didn't know how to suffer. So they suffered once, fartik. <laughs> they had a bad weekend, it was over. Because they, they didn't live long. If you don't live long, you don't suffer a lot. If you live long, I mean, when you're 4,000 years old, you've had a lot of headaches, coughs, colds, flus. I mean, it seems like we suffer more, but it's only because we hang around more. And besides, I said to him, how many holidays do you have on your calendar? Two? And one of them is not such a happy occasion? Look at our calendar. So who's happier? We have a calendar full of holidays. We're rejoicing, we're celebrating, we're eating. So to think that we went through all of that, survived, suffered, and ate for this moment, and now we're going to be too timid or too humble or too modest to speak up? This can't be. This can't be. My father-in-law, a very special man, ended his life two years ago on a flourish. The last year of his life, he became incredibly productive. Wouldn't waste a moment. Even when he was in pain and he was in the hospital and he was suffering and he could barely talk. And the doctor's trying to tell him what's going on and he's saying, 
will you put on tefillin? <laughs> Do me a favor, put on the tefillin. Not a day went by that he wouldn't get a few pe- if if a day if an hour went by and he didn't get somebody to do a mitzvah or say something learn something so he said to one of his sons he said that he heard from uh, an older chassid from a past generation he said that there are some people who are blatantly obviously mishugah everything about them is mishugah you, you take one look you know he's mishugah some people are not so obvious. They're crazy, but you got to look a little closer before you notice that this is a Michigan. Then there are some people who are, for all practical purposes, so normal that you would never know. They come in, they sit down, they ask intelligent questions, they answer your questions intelligently, they speak moderately, they are polite and they are thoughtful and they're considerate and the conversation is over and they say goodbye, good night, thank you very much and they walk out and they slam the door like a Michigan. So in the last moment, the Michigas <laughs> explodes and ruins everything. So he said, my father-in-law said, going out, closing the door, that's like the end of life, passing away. So he says, I don't want to slam the door like a Michigan. <laughs> you know, after all I've gone through and all the work and all the effort and everything else, what am I going to do? Die like a Michiganer? No. Till the last minute, I want to be productive and I want to do good things and I want to close the door like a mensch, not like a Michiganer. So if we apply this to history, we've done an incredible job. We are an, an impossible miracle. Our survival, our goodness, our decency, our morality, our learning, our, we're incredible. All right, not the one guy you're thinking about, but generally, Jews are incredible. And we have been for 4,000 years. Now it's time to close the door on exile. It's time to close the door on this process and finally arrive at a world realized, a world fulfilled. 